This is Jim Bob, and you're listening to the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 44 of Music Is Not A Genre, MXG. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please support this podcast at patreon.com slash at music is not a genre. Uh, I'm going to say it one more time, and then I'm going to ask you to pause, whether you're watching or listening, and to go over there, because you get to try it for free. Patreon.com slash at music is not a genre and then go to membership or whatever it is, you get to try it for free for a week. And then after that, it's as little as $5 a month. And and the free period gives you a chance to see what I'm doing over there, why it's important to support and what you get as well. And all the fun conversations we can have and all of that. Please also go to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre, where if you're just listening, you get to see videos for every single one of these for free also for free and there are 600 plus videos it goes well beyond just these podcast episodes you get uh, live music and all of that stuff so youtube.com slash app music is not a genre my website is nickdomatio.com where you get everything get absolutely everything and if you do slash contact or just hit the contact button on the bottom of the page or several other places you get a free newsletter that i put out a few times a month and get to keep in touch and ask me questions. And then, as always, please listen to and support my band, Rec, R-E-C, which you see here if you're watching behind my new setup, recarea.bandcamp.com or wherever you stream music. Let's get straight into the topic. This is Death is Dumb, Volume 12, George Michael, Burn That Acoustic Guitar. So a couple of things here. First of all, before I really do get into the topic, I want to say that we're coming up on the 200th something for Music Is Not A Genre. I don't know how to classify it. Uh, you can't say episode because some of those have been podfast, but I count podfast because those are mini episodes. And because this started out in a weird way, I'm not exactly sure what the exact 200th of anything is, but it's coming soon. It'll be before the end of this season. And uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to celebrate or what I'm going to do for that. But uh, if you have suggestions, let me know. I would love to hear from you. And the second thing is, as you can see, I've got a bit of a new setup here. Uh, If you watched last week's episode, which was my interview with Scott Shea, I believe in that one, you may have seen the microphone. And it's just something I'm doing now because I like to try to mess with the setup as much as I can to improve sound quality and video quality and just, all you know, the tech quality in general, which is something I try to do, you know, a season after season. This is as much as I can do at the moment, though, without your support. So please, again, go to patreon.com slash at music is not a genre or find some other way to support if you want to go to recarea.bandcamp.com and buy the music. That's another way to do it. It's a one-time thing, or you can have a membership there too if you'd like. But uh, hopefully what I'm bringing you is already quality, but I would love to bump this up even more. You know, the, the you know I come from a film and a recording and, you know, even a little bit of radio background. So I have an understanding that what I'm doing now is is good enough, and, but it's not as good as I would like it to be. So I'd, I'd really love your help with that. So now, finally, let's get to the topic. L- a note on the title. George Michael Byrne, that acoustic guitar. First of all, this is the 12th, the, the, the dozenth uh, version or episode, a volume of Death is Dumb. 
Uh, if you don't know my Death is Dumb series, there's a playlist on youtube.com slash app music is not a genre with all of them. Please go check it out. There, you'll get uh, the 11 other episodes of this and see who I have uh, you know, paid tribute to and why. And why I call it Death is Dumb. I'm, you know, I will point that out a little bit later on with this because I do in every Death is Dumb episode. But the burn that acoustic guitar part, it, it's important because... There is a there is a point that I'm going to make later on, and I will allude to it here and there, but I'll make it a larger point towards my conclusions that has to do with what it means to be a singer-songwriter and the difference between the kind of image and iconography and even the uh, genre restrictions that the term singer-songwriter puts upon artists or in the heads of fans and the actuality of being a singer-songwriter and what variety there is there. So just keep that in mind. Now, why why is George Michael my 12th uh, victim here for Death is Dumb, uh, 12th tribute? Well, here's, here's something interesting. I, of course, grew up with George Michael, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that as I go through the history and then the discography, but I can't say he was super on the radar for being a Death is Dumb candidate, even though I recall when he died at the end of 2016, uh, thinking, wow, that's too young and it's a tragedy and, and all of that. Uh, uh, he had fallen off the radar for me as a performer long before then. And then uh, I watched with my wife two documentaries back to back. Uh, Wham, I think it was called, uh, from Netflix, and then Freedom Uncut. And I'll talk a little bit about those later on. And that reminded me uh, what an important artist he was, and and even that I had a personal connection to him. And that's really where these Death is Dumb you know, uh, episodes come from, is there are hundreds, thousands, who knows how many tragic music deaths, and we're just limiting it to music because it's a music podcast. And I'm not going to do an episode for all of them. I don't. I need some kind of an impetus to say, oh, this, this hurt me, or I feel it in some way, because it gives me an opportunity to put more of myself into the episode and make it more personal, which is what I like to do with every episode. So that happened with George Michael after I saw the documentaries. I also had to kind of let go of a bias that I had held, having uh, been impressed by him in the late 80s and early 90s in particular, and through the 80s, uh, as being just this phenomenal pop star, and then kind of losing touch with other things that he was, and other things he tried to do or did do, and, and things that happened to him, things that he did outside of the music world or outside of creating music. And having been reminded of that through the documentary, I think it it made me realize that it's actually kind of vital that I am doing an episode on George Michael, partly because of that subtitle, Burn That Acoustic Guitar. So let's get into a little history first. And as I always say, I'm not, uh, although I do get a lot of my notes from uh, Wikipedia and several other sources, uh, I am not Wikipedia and Wikipedia is there and so, uh, so many other sources are there for you to look up. And find uh, the more detailed information. Uh, that's really not my purpose here. But hopefully I give you enough of an overview that if you remember George Michael, some of it you'll say, oh yeah, or maybe I didn't know that. And if you don't, then you'll have a kind of a picture. He was born in 1963 uh, of uh, British person, of course, of uh, Greek and English descent. His his real name was uh, Georgios Kyriakos uh, Paniotou, I believe. And... Um, 
he started, you know, he was into music and had a, a long time, a childhood friend in Andrew Ridgely. And then they started the band Wham! Wham! I have to say it like that because there's an exclamation point at the end of it. In 1981, and they did performances and singles and some videos and, and, and TV stuff like that. And Andrew Ridgely was uh, hugely involved in, in the creation of all of that early on and was not just a sidecar, the way a lot of people think uh, of him. They released their first album, Fantastic, in 1983, uh, which made an impact in, in, in England, in Britain, and then Make It Big in 1984, which did cross over to the States in terms of impact, and then Music from the Edge of Heaven in 1986. There were only three official Wham! albums. There were, you know... Uh, the greatest hits and all this, the posthumous or whatever, you know, post wham releases. Uh, the last, those last two albums were huge hits. Uh, George was always of a mind to be a solo artist from the very beginning. And Andrew knew that. And in fact, one of the things that the um, documentaries pointed out, the first documentary was that he wasn't bitter about it. He was aware of it and was okay with it and was fine with the course that wham had run and all the other things. And so through the process of him building to a solo career in which he, you know, had Careless Whisper released under his name only in 84 and A Different Corner in uh, 86 released under his own name. He also did a duet with Aretha Franklin in 1987, I Knew You Were Waiting For Me. I always remember that song. Uh, the f- and and the, that was the first of many, many duets. And I'm going to go into some of those duets later on. Unless you count 1984's Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas, which, you know, it's technically not technically not a duet because there were how many people? A couple dozen performers in that. Uh, if somebody wants to read off a list to me, I'd love to, that. We've done that song. My band has done that song live, and it's been fun. And I've done some of the George Michael stuff, some of the stuff that Sting sang, some of what Simon LeBond sang, and, what, and then what, what uh, Bono sang or some of my parts. It was really fun. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stephen Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. But that all led up to his solo smash debut, Faith, in 1987, which I'll talk about when I do the discography. Uh, and then Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1 in 1990, both of which are just absolute masterpieces. Faith, which it, which you see here, if you're only listening, I'm holding up the CD. It's not the first time I've shown it. I believe it was one of the first or second episodes I did where I was featuring a CD from my collection. And that's because this is the first CD I ever bought. Uh, I believe followed pretty quickly by Cloud Nine by George Harrison. But uh, and then a bunch of others. There was a jazz album I I I got, a compact jazz it was called. And I have featured a bunch of those on previous episodes. But this 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 uh album influenced me a ton. A ton. And it's the first mention, the second mention I'm gonna make of this, and I'll get into it more later, but it showed me, among other things, that you can be a singer-songwriter and not need to sound like uh, Mr. or Ms. Acoustic, you know, which great. I love some of that stuff. James Taylor, Jim Croce, you know, all the great, you know, um, Gordon Lightfoot, Carol King, Carly Simon, whatever. But that's, that's the genre trope. It's the cliche. It's the restriction. There are plenty of other singer-songwriters that don't exist in just that sonic world, you know. And that that's important. And again, I'm going to unweave that as the episode goes on, especially in my conclusions. Subsequent to Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1, he did the live duet with Elton John, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, which was a smash hit. Uh, and then that was a huge duet. And, and really the last thing I remember hearing from him in any significant way until I revisited his music recently. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I heard like whispers of other of his singles through the nineties, but really, you know, nothing as much of an impact as that. Don't let the sun, which again was another duet. And let's talk about some duets. He did. Let's take a break from the history. Other duets that he did. And I'm not talking about the live ones. He had a ton of live duets that there are, there are records of, you can go to YouTube and find them or wherever else. Some of them may have been subsequently released on an album or what have you, but that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I might mention one or two, but it's the actual duets that are on record that are recorded. Uh, he did, uh, his, well, you know, one of his first, or maybe one of his first, yeah, duets, even before Elton John post wham, wham exclamation point was for Andrew Ridgely's solo album the song Red Dress in 1990. He did a duet in 96 with uh, Astro Gilberto, which of course, if you you know uh, Jobim and the, and the Bossa Nova and all that, you know she has just recently died as of this recording in August 2023, re- fairly recently. In 1996, which is the same year as his uh, one of his albums, Older, which I'll talk about later. 
And there was a lot of influence of that type of music on that album. So maybe one of the reasons, you know, why he duetted with Astrid and Gilberto. In 1999, he did a duet with Mary J. Blige, the Stevie Wonder song, As. Uh, And then let's talk about one live thing he did, which was in 2000, he did a a live version of Freedom 90 with Garth Brooks for the Equality Rocks concert. And I'm mentioning this primarily because Garth Brooks is in the news now for being pro-equality and how much that goes against the grain of, unfortunately, a lot of country music fans, though not as many country music artists. Uh, I believe the artists have been shown to be way more diverse than the than most of the country music fans, although that could hopefully be a stereotype. And if you're a country music fan who's also super progressive, please hit me up. Uh, let me know. 2005 did a duet with Ray Charles on Ray Charles Duet's album, which was recorded, of course, before that because he died in 04 and was released posthumously. In 06, he did a duet with Tony Bennett on Tony Bennett's Duet's album, one of them who also just recently died. 2008 uh, was recorded earlier, but it was released in 08. He did a duet with uh, Paul McCartney, a song Heal the Pain, which it was a cool duet in that when that song came out on Listen Without Prejudice, it was said to be McCartney-esque. So then it all comes back around almost 20 years later, 15 to 20, and, and he does does it with McCartney in actuality. And I'll talk a little bit more about it when we get to that point in the discography. And then he did do duet uh, with Beyonce in 2009. And those aren't all of them. Again, long list of live duets and then a few other recorded duets. He, was, he did backup vocals and co-writing and co-performing credits on some other people's things, especially in the 80s. Uh, now let's get back to the history. The, 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 and I'll expand again on the releases when I do the discography. After 1990, he got involved in a legal dispute with the record company because he felt he didn't have enough autonomy and control over his material. And unfortunately, it was a years-long process in which, in which he lost. And he put his solo recording career on, on hold for like five or six years. And that's unfortunate. Uh, he is said to have regretted it, but at the same time, I think that he pushed forward things that eventually did happen for many artists, although we know the kind of ebb and flow of the pushback of this. We see it in society with economics and politics and how sometimes, you know, the the less fortunate of us are up and sometimes we're down and that's happened in the, re- in the record business as well. Uh, but with People like him and Prince fighting for more autonomy and other artists doing that. Uh, there was some progress made, then some step backs, then some further, whatever. And then the internet came and all, you know, and now we're all in trouble because of streaming. But that, again, he did release uh, one, uh, three singles for the compilation uh, Red Hot and Dance, which was one of the uh, AIDS charity albums from the Red Hot uh, group. And I was into that series. Um, I remember Red Hot and Blue was my favorite. And one and one of the three singles, uh, well, he did three singles, and one of them was Top Ten, which is too funky. And I actually remember that song. So that may be the last song of his that I remember uh, concurrently, as far as when it existed, when it came out. Uh, and then it wasn't until 1996 that he released another album, and it was the album Older, which when you think about it, he was what? in his 30s 
would he have been 32, 33? Sure, older, but come on, right? But he understood that happens in the pop world where you, people start to say, oh, you know, maybe the world has passed you by and trends have passed you by, although it was a successful album. And more successful in uh, the UK and Europe, which happens to so many artists. Talked about that when I talked about the BGs, because the US is more fickle and and uh, doesn't really, it's not not as loyal to its artists. Most of the people I talk to in the U.S., band members even, it's amazing how they talk about their favorite bands. Oh, they were great when. They put out this one good album or two or three good albums and then blam. And that has so much to do with the world passing them by and it coloring our perception of it. And if you were to really listen to the chronography of an artist, you would see the you know, ebb and flow of, of their talents, of course, in some ways, but honestly, it's mostly just a building and building and changing and growing and in many ways often getting better. And it's disturbing to me that we throw people away and artists away so quickly if they're not at the top of the charts. But anyway, uh, uh, so 1999, uh, George Michael released an album, Songs from the Last Century, which was a covers album. Again, I'll get into that in the discography. 2004, he released Patience, which was his final album of original material. And then he did a lot of singles after that, uh, which I'll get to. And yes, he had uh, a lot of, uh, you know, emotional issues, uh, substance abuse issues, which of course are both related. And some of that had to do with the fact that he, you know, was gay and did not come out for several years. And and there's a real uh, discussion about that now where, uh, you know, younger generations don't understand why people in older generations didn't just come out and kind of stand up for the rights. And it, it'd be hard to explain the, and some did, but it would be hard to explain the culture and the pressure and the different climate in different decades that, Anyone who came out at all at any point, first of all, it was huge news. It was unfortunately often a scandal, but it was huge news, which these days, it's news sometimes. Sometimes it's not news at all, and that's such a different world, and I'm glad we're here, and I hope it gets even better. But let's not forget how hard it was. And then so the pressure that that put on on him uh, among other things, you know, uh, significant deaths, death of his first significant lover and the death of his mother, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many things that went into uh, the troubles that he had in life and, you know, his 1998 or seven run in with, uh, you know, an undercover cop in a bathroom stall, solicitation, blah, 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 and the craziness with that, how wonderfully well he handled it even releasing a song about it that was kind of a jokey song. Like he was just on the up and up, but it took its toll. And he was in and out of rehab and and off and on drugs and substance abuse for his entire life. And towards the end was making a comeback and making a doc, which I'm going to talk to in a, about in a second. Uh, in a, in the same way that kind of Michael Jackson was on his way to a comeback, a series of comeback concerts right before he died. And then on Christmas Day, 2016, ironic considering Wham's most famous song these days is probably Last Christmas, death uh, due to heart and liver issues, which you could say was a byproduct of the abuse that he put on his body all those years, but it could have been also a part, a genetically part of that. 
So it wasn't directly a, a death by drugs, but major health issues. I believe he died in his sleep Christmas Day. So let's get to the discography. And yeah, death is dumb and it, and it sucks. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as I get to that period in his career. Uh, as far as the discography goes, I'm going to start with Wham! Wham! Because I feel like that's where he started and it's significant. It's important. First Wham! album was fantastic in 1983. Honestly, an amazing debut that had really no impact in the United States, but pretty darn impactful in the UK. Really launched their career. And it has such a distinct early 80s sound, which is so different from the mid and late 80s sound. And I love that sound. And it still has hints of 70s disco and funk. It has early style rapping on it. It really... It is it was almost a shock to me to hear the full album and realize the difference between that one and music from the edge of heaven. It really it's not night and day. There's a there's a flow, there's a kind of progression there. But just that mm, knock knocking out the park, that kind of early eighties, especially early eighties, uh, you know, UK European pop sound. Some of the songs I like on their bad boys. Uh, their cover of Love Machine by The Miracles it was a hit for The Miracles in 1975 after Smokey had left them. Love that song. Wham Rap. Uh, I enjoy this version, but I honestly didn't know it then. I, I didn't know it until they released a new version in 1986, uh, which I'll talk about. Club Tropicana honestly sounds like there's a couple of songs on Chicago's album from, I want to say, 79, 78. But one of those, uh, 12 through 14, one of those albums, ooh, horns and obviously and everything and, and, and has that disco feel to it. It's amazing how much this song, Club Tropicana, sounds like some of that Chicago stuff. It's kind of cool. It, you know, if you can uh, understand the context of it and the, and, the, and the current kitschiness of it, I find it to be a pretty cool song. Young Guns Go For It, another good song. Make It Big 1984 album is exactly what happened. It's when I became aware of them. It's when the U.S. became aware of them in a significant way because of songs like Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, which was uh, something I enjoyed that song at the time. Uh, Everything She Wants, I even liked even more than Wake Me Up. Freedom, the first freedom. I don't want your freedom. Uh, Great song, Careless Whisper, which was released under his name only, even though it was them. A beautiful song. You know, it kind of it kind of is like true colors and time after time, uh, you know, in terms of that, that type of ballad impact, but more soulful, you know, and it's the bridge album really between the early and late 80s. It has, uh, you know, little bits of the early 80s still in there and, and things to come, you know, on it. And what was to come was music from the edge of heaven in 1986 uh, songs I like from there, another huge album, even huger, I think, in the States than Make It Big, The Edge of Heaven. Battle Stations, very cool. I hadn't really heard that until recently. I'm Your Man, of course, Wham Rap 86, of course, and of course, Last Christmas, which is just iconic now, and it's classic now, and I did an episode on that this album, actually, and that song for uh, one of my annual Christmas episodes a few years ago, season two, maybe, I can't remember maybe season three. Uh, So that leads to Wham! breaking up. They knew it was coming, so they planned for it. Faith in 1987. Here we are. Again, I'm pointing it out. 
I'm, I'm vanawiting my faith, just so you understand, people who are watching, how important it was to me. The whole first side is incredible. Just forget it. The whole first side is incredible. But I remember being blown away in particular by father figure. The, the feel of it, the sound of it, the lyrics of it. It's, it's one of my top favorite songs from the album. Uh, one More Try, Closing Out That Side, is similar to me to Kissing a Fool in that it is a throwback song. It's an earlier age of music. And when he did it, I was like, wait a second. A, a mega pop artist can do that? You can go to that kind of music in the midst of doing this kind of funky pop stuff? Okay. And then I wrote a song subsequent, uh, which was inspired by that and the Harry Connick stuff from when Harry met Sally called, uh, is it hot in here? Is it just me? And wrote a few others, but that one in particular. And I attribute that in many ways to the stuff that uh, George Michael was doing. Uh, Monkey is my sex. So Monkey and Father Figure are, I think, my two kind of secret favorites from this album. Although you can't knock Faith, of course, and the rest of side one. And I want your sex. Yeah, of course. But those are the ones that if I'm going to listen to this album now, I'd go to Monkey and I'd go to Father Figure, you know. Which brings us to his last Super Smash in the States, uh, Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1, released in 1990. I had somewhat moved on by then, but thankfully the world hadn't, and especially the States hadn't, and it was a huge hit. And it was yet another revolution you can't call any of these reinventions because it's really kind of a through line that he had from the very beginning of the 80s through his a whole career of stuff that he was interested in and stuff that he did. It would pop in and out and would have different version levels of emphasis, but it was all kind of this through line. And yet, every time, you know, from each Wham! album to uh, Faith to Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1, the things he did made such a huge impact each time. I I loved revisiting it because I hadn't actually heard all of the songs until we watched the documentaries and then I, uh, you know, I, I re-listened to the music. Which, by the way, just to make a, a note, that first documentary, Wham! and the second one, Freedom Uncut, had, uh, you know, uh, things in, in slight overlap, but not much. And I recommend watching them both back to back in that order because it really gives you a history of well, it started with Wham, and then what happened with the, you know, solo career. It doesn't, it doesn't get down and dirty, nitty gritty the way you know behind the music and that crap does, which has more to do with I think salaciousness than it does the music or the musician. Uh, which fine if that's what you're into, but you know. Uh, but it does give you a great history focusing primarily on the music and the career things and some other stuff like that, both back to back, you know, uh, and I mean, look, Freedom Uncut was produced by George Michael uh, before he died and and then completed by uh, obviously other people. So it's not going to be this tell all. That's not what his intention was. Anyway, back to Listen Without Prejudice, volume one. Praying for Time is like it's kind of as John Lennon song, beautiful song. Freedom 90, we had in our wedding mix. And that's just a classic now. And the video is a classic. And the image busting, which had to do primarily with, I'm not the guy from Faith anymore, I'm doing this. And I'm going to burn the guitar and there's the taking off the leather jacket or whatever. And I believe he wasn't even in that uh, video. But 
I think it also had to do with a musical, again, not reinvention, but moving on. And I'm going to talk about that and how it relates to being a singer-songwriter a little bit later on in this episode. They Won't Go When I Go, which is a Stevie Wonder cover. Again, I hadn't heard it until recently, and it's just freaking incredible. I remember I started listening. I was like, wait, I know this song. It's because I know the Stevie version. And I'm like, well, his version is just so good, and Stevie loved it too. Uh, Waiting for That Day, excellent. Heal the Pain was the Beatles-esque song and just a fun song, a beautiful song too. And I'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to his 2000s career. And then the big break, all the legal troubles, playing live, doing the Red Hot, all that stuff in between. And then he releases the album Older in 1996. I don't think I heard any single one of these songs when it came out. If I had slightly moved on in 1990 by 96, I had fully moved on and And the thing is, and more than me moving on, it's that the U.S. had moved on. It was a big hit in Europe. Huge hit, actually, this album and so many of the singles. Not as much or so much or much at all of an impact in the United States, which means our exposure to it was a lot less. And back then that mattered because you couldn't just go onto the internet and you read, oh, somebody you like released it, which I do so much now where I'm like, oh my God, one of my favorite artists released an album and I don't know about it. Why? Because the media in the US isn't talking about it at all, but where they released it and, and it's like huge in like the UK or Germany or wherever, it, you know, or France, it, it's it's a big hit. And should be talked about here. But again, it really, it, it's just one of the distasteful things uh, about uh, music fans in this country. And again, I'm not categorizing all of us as that. But but people who tend to be kind of fly by night with their tastes bothers the hell out of me. It really bothers the hell out of me. And uh, I will probably do an episode on that at some point in the future. But anyway, I really didn't know any of the music from older. It has a very uh, jazz and, you know, Jobim Bossa Nova kind of influence to it. More organic instruments, though there's not totally. There's there's some electronic and kind of dance and, you know, that kind of funky stuff as well, programmed stuff. But much mellower, much mellower than anything he had released prior to that. Uh, Fast Love Part 1, oh, I like that song a lot. Uh, Spinning the Wheel, great, love it as well. It doesn't really matter. I like that song. Free is very cool because it is a straight up mix up of jazz and electronic, kind of like acid jazz. And uh, I think it's just an instrumental. Really love that song. I really like, you know, it's a good song to kind of put on in the background when you want to chill but feel good about it. And then a couple of years later, uh, the only reason I'm mentioning Ladies and Gentlemen, The Best of George Michael from 1998 is because there were two singles from that, Outside and As. As was the Mary J. Blige duet, the Stevie Wonder song. And Outside was his funny commentary on him being solicited by a policeman and arrested or whatever. And just and the fact that he comes right out and says, this is how I'm going to handle it. Beautiful. And I saw part of the video of it. And it's very cool. Following year, he releases songs from the last century, uh, 1999. Again, never heard a single thing from this. I'm not a fan of artists doing a a tribute album to the Great American Songbook. I'm just not, because artists rarely do anything interesting with those songs. They either they either take them so far off form and try to like, you know, Rod Stewart them that they're hard to listen to, or they they try to be too faithful to the originals. So is you know the thing is this. 
you can't deny that his voice is incredible and that the choice of songs and the arrangements are absolutely super tasteful. You know, when you talk about a jazz version of Roxanne and, um, you know, a few other non-American songbook standards like uh, Miss Sarajevo of U2. But again, this is just not my bag. Uh, and and yet, I if you're into pop artists doing jazz stuff, I do recommend it. And then, wasn't until 2004 that he released another full album, and it was his final album, it was original material, and it was called Patience. And I was not even aware that this existed. I'm sure at some point I knew it existed, but I fully forgot. This album actually reminds me a lot of Robin Gibbs' solo album from the year before. Which it has that kind of R and B. There's some hip hop. There's funkiness to it. There's some rock to it. It's a little less mellow than 1999's album, and even a little less mellow than older from 1996. It's a nice progression, honestly, and, a, and an album that I actually really enjoyed listening to. My favorite songs: Patience, Amazing, Cars and Trains, Cool, Shoot the Dog, Very Cool. Flawless has a lot of energy to it, as does Precious Box in a more haunting way, but very, very cool. Freak 04, compelling, and Through is uh, really nice. Uh, a nice song. I hope that wasn't a typo. I just have the word Through there. I don't know. You tell me if I screwed that up. But that was his last album. You know, 13, sorry, 12 years before he died. What did he do? Well, he released a lot of singles and dealt with a lot of other substance abuse and things like that. And he did do some live stuff, but not ton. Uh, So subsequent singles post that album. Uh, An Easier Affair 2006. I really like this song. Never heard it. Just listened to it. Absolutely love it. And what's funny is America knew nothing about it. But it was a hit, hit, a number one hit in guess which two countries, Italy and Hungary. I happen to be half Italian and half Hungarian. So is it a coincidence that I happen to love this song? Yes. Yes, it is actually. But it's also a pretty cool coincidence. Very fun. Uh, Heal the Pain, who I talked about before. McCartney-esque. So what did he do? You know, six, I believe, in that area, re-recorded it with McCartney. And they released it in 08. I love this version. Not just because I like the production values of 08 better than the production values of 1990, but also because McCartney's a part of it. And there's a lot of energy and life to it as much as there was in the original. Just freaking awesome. Another one I can't believe I didn't know about, uh, although, again, the States. He, He did a cover of New Order's True Faith in 2011 and made it kind of a, a kind of an electro ballad uh, thing that is just really fucking cool. Really, really cool version and worthy, a worthy cover of that New Order song. And then the last one, it really, uh, it was 2012's White Light. I believe there were others that were released in subsequent. I'm not mentioning all the singles, but the ones that made an impact on me. This song, White Light, makes me uh, just extra sad. He's dead because I love the song. It should have been some version of a hit, and maybe it was in the you know UK and Europe, certainly not here. But it just shows how much life and energy Steele had on him. And this was right after uh, he almost died. He was comatose for a while, I think the year before. And so it's him talking about, I'm still alive. I'm still making music. There's still things I want to do. And it's, it's haunting, you know, tragic and beautiful. 
and amazing and just great energy. And then posthumously, Niall Rogers, who we worked with before, uh, released a version of a song called Fantasy, which was a B-side, not included on Listen Without Prejudice, but recorded back then, and he did a remix of it. And it's a, it's just a fucking great tribute remix. A great, go look up Fantasy 2017 featuring Niall Rogers. Yeah, I think you're going to love it. And And that's it. It's one of the shortest discographies I've gone through in any of these episodes. So I'm going to just uh, jump to conclusions, as we say. And and here's the thing. So why is death dumb? As I always say, because it robs us of what might have been. And when you see that in so many cases, these artists die when they're like, you know, John Lennon, uh, even Kurt Cobain, were getting ready to work on things that probably would have taken them in a new direction and blown us away even more and were robbed of that other than whatever had been recorded before they died and was released posthumously like this, you know, album milk and honey or whatever it, it it's, and it's a shame that somebody was so full of life, so full of love, really love for people, love for music, you know, and so sensitive and so vulnerable, which is probably partly why he, you know, went towards substance abuse and had mental health issues because you, it's hard to be that vulnerable and sensitive in the world and not have it have an impact and have to find ways to cope. And we don't always find healthy ways to cope. And when you see the documentary Freedom Uncut and you understand that it was his statement of saying, I am back and I am ready to go. And then he does go, but in the totally wrong way, it, it really, uh, that's why I'm doing this episode. It's why I'm doing it. And his dad is still alive. Holy shit, right? I mean, his mom died in 97 and his sister, one of his sisters died subsequent to his death. And they think it was of a broken heart among other reasons. Uh, but uh, his, his other sister is still alive. His dad is still alive as of this recording. Uh, so there are people, you know, dealing with mourning his loss, you know, and as, as any fan is as well, though not certainly as much as they are. And then, of course, yes, another, just a statement about the fact that he was gay uh, and his struggles with coming out. And I will say again, if you didn't live through that time in in a sentient way and old enough, you're old enough to understand what was going on, you don't realize how hard it was to live that way, to honestly live with any part of yourself that was against the norm and not be able to talk about it and tell other people about it. Or you could tell one person or one run the risk of telling somebody and they blab to somebody else like things that do still happen today, especially in certain areas of the country and the world. But we're fortunate in that there are so many areas of the country and the world where you can just say at a pretty early age and to a very wide group of people, this is who I am and find a large amount of acceptance. You'll find pushback, you'll find bullying, you'll find hate and all that too, but you're going to find more acceptance in a wider way than you would have in the 80s, 90s, and before then, you know? So let's let's understand that that's the culture that he was living through. And the fact that he came out, Ellen came out, you know, around the same time, like all of the people who who were brave enough to finally do that, even though many of us already kind of knew, well, that was probably the case. 
just shows that the, these are important steps that happen along the development of issues like this. But the biggest takeaway for me, because this is mostly about the music, is what I've been alluding to since the subtitle of this freaking episode, and that is being a singer-songwriter. When I say that, what do you think of? You think of a person sitting with an acoustic guitar or behind a piano, almost exclusively those two instruments, uh, singing their heart out in an intimate way about something personal, right? I have I have said so many times, no matter what the episode was, that that is so far from the breadth of what being a singer-songwriter is. I remember when I started out thinking that if I was going to be a singer-songwriter, I had to do that. And fortunately, there were people like George Michael and, and Prince and others who showed me that, no, you don't. You can sound like whatever you want to sound like, and you're still singing and writing these songs. So again, fairly early on, I jumped from that kind of, oh, I can only be this to being, no, I want to be whatever I want to be, which was a little bit of everything in, in so many ways. And that that faith showed that. Uh, like I said, I I think it's interesting that when he went solo and wanted to be taken seriously, he first threw the acoustic guitar up as the symbol, faith. Think of the video for faith, you know, so much acoustic guitar in that. It And then think of how... He was like, I'm more than just this. And and we little did we know, or maybe we did know, he was more in many other ways, but especially musically, I'm more than just this. And I can be a singer-songwriter that I want to be and not have to rely on the iconography and the cliche of the acoustic guitar, so I'm going to burn it. And yes, that was about burning his image as well and saying, this is me, I'm moving on. Guess who I am? Uh, but it was also to me about burning the tyranny of thinking that you have to have an acoustic guitar or piano to be taken seriously as a singer-songwriter. And also, let's think, let's not overlook the fact how white that vision is. You know, other than the blues. We don't call blues artists singer-songwriters, and they freaking are, you know, especially the pioneers and the second and third wave blues people. So, so much are, Right? We say, no, that's a blues artist, you know, even Bonnie Raitt, you know, and people beyond that. But they're also singer-songwriters. And that's the only, I think, exception to what I'm talking about, which is that's often largely acoustic-based. But we acknowledge them very often as both blues artists and singer-songwriters, even though we don't classify them in the singer-songwriter genre which is a dumb genre to begin with. You know, I understand, I, I understand why it needed to exist in the 70s and the echoes of it beyond that. I get that. Through the 80s, 90s, beyond. You know, but let's understand that Stevie Wonder is a singer-songwriter, you know, uh, but he's classified as a soul artist and not first and foremost as an incredible fucking singer-songwriter. Because the music doesn't sound like traditional singer-songwriter music. Neither did George Michaels. Tame Impala, someone I've brought up before, is a band? Yeah, but it's one person. And that one person is a singer-songwriter, but classified as kind of alt-psychedelic, pop-rock, whatever. Wreck has been a band off and on, but it's largely just me. And I am a singer-songwriter. 
the majority of what I do does not sound like acoustic or piano-based singer-songwriter music. Sometimes when I perform, I do it that way because I like interpreting the songs in a stripped-down way. I don't very much enjoy recording them that way. And as you go through the catalog of Rec, you absolutely hear that, but also absolutely hear that aside from the obvious covers, every single one of those songs I wrote and then produced in ways that sound nothing like traditional singer-songwriter songs. You know, maybe little hints here and there, like a song like Real Life or something like that. And that's just to me, again, the music is not a genre. It just always comes to that, which includes the featured song from Rex's album, The Sunshine Seminar. It's a song called Up All Day. And it is a kind of a pop, R&B, electro, soul song. Uh, and it's a love song. It has some psychedelic elements. It has some glitch elements to it. But when you listen to it and you listen to the harmonies, you listen to my vocal approach, you listen to the content, you listen to the way it was produced, especially in relation to, uh, honestly, throughout George Michael's career, there were electronic songs like this. You'll understand why I chose that. Uh, such a clear influence that George Michael had on that song, though I didn't know at the time. I don't tend to always think of the influences I have when I'm doing a song, and then I'll listen back and say, oh, wow, you know, I got part of that idea from this artist or whatever it is. I think you're going to hear that uh, if you stick around for the next minute. Uh, it'll be featured here. And then it's featured in my playlist on YouTube, all the featured songs. It's anywhere you're streaming. There's a link there to the the Bandcamp uh, version of it. Yes, please go there and buy it if you can, but listen to it for sure. But you can find it streaming everywhere. It's called Up All Day from the Sunshine Seminar. And uh, that's it, other than some questions I have for you, which is, were you even into George Michael and or Wham? And if not, why weren't you? If so, though, did you follow him throughout his career or did you kind of drop out uh, that, uh, you know, either after Faith or Listen Without Prejudice and and uh, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me or Too Funky and lost touch for the reasons that I discussed? Or, yeah, did you follow him throughout his career? What biases do you think you might have had about him because of who he was, because of what kind of music he did? Do you think Did you think that he was just kind of this light pop person who didn't have depth and soul? Uh, or how he died, or the issues that troubled him, that plagued him throughout his life and career? Did you have biases based on that? If so, I urge you to revisit. Uh, and do you think he qualifies as a singer-songwriter? That's a gimme right there after the the speech that I just gave. But I want to know your answer to that one in particular. I want to know the answers to all of this stuff, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you for hanging with me, and I will talk to you next week. In the middle of the evening 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 